From the Conference Center at Temple Square in Salt Lake City, this is the Sunday morning session of the 187th Semi-Annual General Conference of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, with speakers selected from the general authorities and general officers of the church. Music for this session is provided by the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. This broadcast is furnished as a public service by Bonneville Distribution. Any reproduction, recording, transcription, or other use of this program without written consent is prohibited. President Dieter F. Uchtdorf, Second Counselor in the First Presidency of the Church, will conduct this session. Dear brothers and sisters, dear friends, we welcome you to the Sunday morning session of the 187th Semiannual General Conference of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints on this beautiful fall morning. We express our love to President Thomas S. Monson, who is at home this morning, Elder Robert D. Hales, who has been excused from the sessions of this conference is also in our prayers. We extend our greetings and warm wishes to those of you who are participating in these proceedings throughout the world by radio, television, the Internet, or satellite transmission. We acknowledge the general authorities and the general officers who are in attendance this morning. The music for this session will be provided by the Mormon Tabernacle Choir under the direction of Mac Wilberg with Andrew Unsworth and Clay Christiansen at the organ. The choir opened this meeting with Praise to the Lord the Almighty and will now favor us with Press Forward Saints. The invocation will then be offered by Elder Michael T. Wingwood of the Seventy.
Our Father in heaven, we gather this morning as saints who desire eternal life, and we give thanks to Thee that there is a perfect brightness of hope that can be found in the atoning sacrifice of the Savior. We desire, Father, not only to sing praise to Thee this morning and Thy Son, but desire a portion of Thy Spirit to be with us. We pray that we might have strength and faith in Thee and in Thy beloved Son, that we might use that strength and faith to strengthen families, to strengthen communities, and to strengthen the world. We pray for Thy blessings and do so in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. The choir will now favor us with Consider the Lilies. After the singing, we will be pleased to hear from Sister Jean B. Bingham, Relief Society General President. She will be followed by Elder Donald L. Hallstrom of the 70. Following his remarks, the choir will sing Hark, All Ye Nations. Elder David A. Bednar of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles will then address us.
Brothers and sisters, it is a joy to be with you. And that's what I'd like to talk with you about this morning, having a fullness of joy. A recent news headline reads, Disasters rock the nation and world, from hurricanes and floods to heat waves and droughts, from wildfires and earthquakes to wars and devastating diseases. It seems the whole earth is in commotion. Millions of people have been displaced, and countless lives have been disrupted by these challenges. Contention in families and communities, as well as inner struggles with fear, doubt, and unfulfilled expectations also leave us in turmoil. It can be difficult to feel the joy that Lehi taught is the purpose of life. We have all asked at times, where can I turn for peace? Where is my solace? We wonder, how do I find joy despite the difficulties of mortal life? The answer may seem too simple, but it has proven true from the days of Adam. Lasting joy is found in focusing on our Savior Jesus Christ and living the gospel as demonstrated and taught by Him. The more we learn about, have faith in, and emulate Jesus Christ, the more we come to understand that He is the source of all healing, peace, and eternal progress. He invites each of us to come unto Him, an invitation that President Henry B. Eyring has characterized as the most important invitation anyone could accept. How do we come unto Him? Last April, President Russell M. Nelson and Elder M. Russell Ballard encouraged us to study the living Christ as part of learning about the Savior. Many have accepted the challenge and been blessed. Not long ago, a dear friend gave each of her adult children copies of the document with gospel pictures to illustrate each phrase. She encouraged her children to help her grandchildren understand and memorize it. Sometime later, my friend shared a video of her six-year-old granddaughter, Lainey, reciting her memorized version with enthusiasm and poise. I realized that if a six-year-old could do it, so can I. As I have studied the life and teachings of Jesus Christ with more focus and committed the living Christ to memory, my gratitude and love for our Savior has increased. Each sentence of that inspired document contains a sermon and has enhanced my understanding of His divine roles and earthly mission. What I have learned and felt through this period of study and reflection confirms that Jesus truly is the light, the life, and the hope of the world. Ancient scripture and Latter-day Prophets' words written or spoken in praise of Him bear witness that His way is the path that leads to happiness in this life and eternal life in the world to come. As you study Christ's life and teachings in a myriad of ways, your faith in Him will increase. You will come to know that He loves you individually and understands you perfectly. In His 33 years of mortality, He suffered rejection, persecution, bodily hunger, thirst, and fatigue, loneliness, verbal and physical abuse, and finally, an excruciating death at the hands of sinful men. In the Garden of Gethsemane and on the cross of Calvary, He felt all of our pains, afflictions, temptations, sicknesses, and infirmities. No matter what we have suffered, He is the source of healing. Those who have experienced any manner of abuse, devastating loss, 
chronic illness or disabling affliction, untrue accusations, vicious persecution, or spiritual damage from sin or misunderstandings can all be made whole by the Redeemer of the world. However, He will not enter without invitation. We must come unto Him and allow Him to work His miracles. One beautiful spring day, I left the door open to enjoy the fresh air. A small bird flew in the open door and then realized this was not where it wanted to be. It flew desperately around the room, repeatedly flying into the window glass in an attempt to escape. I tried to gently guide it toward the open door, but it was frightened and kept darting away. It finally landed on top of the window drapes in bewildered exhaustion. I took a broom and slowly reached the bristle end up to where the bird nervously perched. As I held the head of the broom next to its feet, the bird tentatively stepped onto the bristles. Slowly, very slowly, I walked to the open door, holding the broom as steady as I could. As soon as we reached the open door, the bird swiftly flew to freedom. Like that bird, sometimes we are afraid to trust because we don't understand God's absolute love and desire to help us. But when we study Heavenly Father's plan and Jesus Christ's mission, we understand that their only objective is our eternal happiness and progress. They delight to help us when we ask, seek, and knock. When we exercise faith and humbly open ourselves to their answers, we become free from the constraints of our misunderstandings and assumptions and we can be shown the way forward. Jesus Christ is also the source of peace. He invites us to lean on His ample arm and promises the peace which passeth all understanding, a feeling that comes when His Spirit speaks peace to our souls no matter what challenges surround us. Whether they are personal struggles, family troubles, or community crises, Peace will come as we trust that God's only begotten Son has power to soothe our aching souls. Shnizana Podvinsky, one of a small number of saints in Karlovac, Croatia, leaned on the Savior when her husband and both of her parents died within a six-month period last year. Grief-stricken, but having a testimony that families are forever, she used all of her savings to travel to the temple where she was sealed to her husband and parents. She shared that those days in the temple were a highlight in her life. Because of her firm testimony of Jesus Christ and His Atonement, she has felt peace and experienced healing that have also been a strength to those around her. Faith in Jesus Christ brings even more gifts in healing and peace. As President Henry B. Eyring shared, I have been thankful for the many ways the Lord has visited me with the Comforter when I needed peace. Yet, our Father in Heaven is concerned not just about our comfort, but even more about our upward progress. Because of Jesus Christ's Atonement, which includes the gifts of redemption and resurrection, we are able to repent, change, and progress eternally. Because of the power He gives as we are obedient, we are able to become more than we ever could on our own. We may not understand completely how, but each of us who has felt faith in Christ increase has also received a greater understanding of our divine identity and purpose, leading us to make choices that are consistent with that knowledge. Despite a world that will try to knock us down to the level of mere animals, 
knowing that God is our Father, assures us that we have divine potential and royal promise. Despite a world that tells us this life is a dead end, knowing that God's only begotten Son has made it possible for us to be redeemed and resurrected gives us hope for eternal progress. As we learn more about Jesus Christ, we develop greater faith in Him, and we naturally want to follow His example. Keeping His commandments becomes our greatest desire. Our hearts yearn to relieve others' suffering as He did, and we want them to experience the peace and happiness we have found. Why is trying to do as He did so powerful? Because when we put our faith into action, the Holy Ghost bears witness of eternal truth. Jesus instructs His disciples to keep His commandments because He knows that as we follow His example, we will begin to experience joy, and as we continue on His path, we will come to a fullness of joy. He explained, These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. Are our testimonies built on the bedrock foundation of Jesus Christ and His gospel? When the storms of life press upon us, do we frantically look for a how-to book or an internet post for help? Taking the time to build and strengthen our knowledge and testimony of Jesus Christ will yield rich dividends in times of trial and adversity. Daily reading of scriptures and pondering the words of living prophets, engaging in meaningful personal prayer, mindfully partaking of the sacrament each week, giving service as a Savior would, Each of these simple activities becomes a building block for a joyful life. What brings you joy? The sight of your loved ones at the end of a long day? The satisfaction of a job done well? The light in someone's eyes when you share their burden? The words of a hymn that reaches deep into your heart? The hand clasp of a close friend? Take a private moment to reflect on your blessings and then find ways to share them. As you reach out to serve and lift your brothers and sisters within your neighborhood or throughout this world that is in so much commotion, you will feel greater peace and healing and even progress. Come unto Him. I testify that as you center your life on Jesus Christ, you will find joy in your circumstances, whatever they may be. Indeed, He, only one, is the answer. Make time and take time to come to know Jesus Christ through studying diligently, developing greater faith in Him, and striving to become ever more like Him. As we do so, we will be moved to say, as with little Laney, God be thanked for the matchless gift of His divine Son. In the sacred and blessed name of Jesus Christ, amen. A year ago, on assignment in the state of California, I went with a stake president to visit with Clark and Holly Fells and their family in their home. I was told that they recently had experienced a miracle. Upon our arrival, Clark struggled to stand and greet us as he was wearing a back brace, a neck brace, and braces on his arms. Just over two months prior, Clark and his son Ty and about 30 other young men and leaders set out on a stake high adventure activity 
hiking to the 14,180-foot summit of Mount Shasta, one of the highest peaks in California. On the second day of the arduous hike, most of the climbers reached the summit, a thrilling accomplishment made possible because of months of preparation. One of the first people to the top that day was Clark. After a brief rest near the edge of the summit, he stood and began to walk. As he did, he tripped and fell backward over the edge of a cliff, suffering a free fall of about 40 feet and then an out-of-control tumble down the icy slope for another 300 feet. Remarkably, Clark survived, but he was severely injured and unable to move. The miracles Clark experienced during this traumatic event were just beginning. Some of the first to reach him happened to be a group of hikers that included mountain rescue guides and emergency medical professionals. They immediately treated Clark for shock and provided gear to keep him warm. This group also happened to be testing a new communication device and sent an emergency request for help from an area where cell phones could not get a signal. A small helicopter was immediately dispatched to Mount Shasta from an hour away. After two dangerous but unsuccessful attempts to land at an altitude that pushed the limits of the aircraft, and struggling with treacherous wind conditions, the pilot began a third and final try. As the helicopter approached from a different angle, the winds happened to change, and the aircraft landed just long enough for the group to quickly and painfully squeeze Clark into the small compartment behind the pilot's seat. When Clark was evaluated at Trauma Center, tests revealed that he had sustained multiple fractures in his neck, back, ribs, and wrists, a punctured lung, and a multitude of cuts and abrasions. A renowned neurotrauma surgeon happened to be on duty that day. He is at this hospital only a few times a year. The doctor later stated that he had never seen anyone sustain so much damage to the spinal cord and the carotid arteries and live. Clark was not only expected to live, but to return to full function. Describing himself as agnostic, the surgeon said Clark's case went against all his scientific learning about neurological injuries and could only be described as a miracle. As Clark and Holly finished relating this intense account, I found it difficult to speak. It was not simply because of the obvious miracles, but because of a greater one. I had a profound impression, a spiritual witness, that Holly and each of the five beautiful children who sat in the living room around their parents have such faith that they could have accepted whatever the outcome might have been that day, and they still would have spiritually prospered. Clark and Holly and their two oldest children, Ty and Porter, are with us today in the conference center. In pondering the experience of the Fells family, I have thought much about the circumstances of so many others. What about the innumerable, faith-filled, priesthood-blessing-receiving, unendingly prayed-for, covenant-keeping, full-of-hope Latter-day Saints whose miracle never comes? 
at least in the way they understand a miracle, at least in the way that others appear to receive miracles. What about those who suffer from profound afflictions physically, mentally, emotionally, for years or for decades or for their entire mortal life? What about those who die so very young? Just two months ago, two temple recommend holding married couples with three full-time missionary children and five other children between them took off in a small airplane for a short flight. I am confident that they prayed for safety before the flight and prayed fervently when the aircraft encountered serious mechanical problems before crashing. None survived. What about them? Do good people and their loved ones have reason to ask the question posed by Mormon, has the day of miracles ceased? My limited knowledge cannot explain why sometimes there is divine intervention and other times there is not. But perhaps we lack an understanding of what constitutes a miracle. Often we describe a miracle as being healed without a full explanation by medical science or as avoiding catastrophic danger by heeding a clear prompting. However, defining a miracle as a beneficial event brought about through divine power that mortals do not understand gives an expanded perspective into matters more eternal in nature. This definition also allows us to contemplate the vital role of faith in the receipt of a miracle. Moroni taught, Neither at any time hath any wrought miracles until after their faith. Ammon proclaimed, God has provided a means that man through faith might work mighty miracles. The Lord revealed to Joseph Smith, For I am God, and I will show miracles unto all those who believe on my name. King Nebuchadnezzar demanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego worship the golden image he had set up as a god, threatening, If ye worship not, ye shall be cast into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Then he taunted them with, Who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hands? These three devout disciples said, If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. But if not, be it known unto thee, O King, that we will not serve thy gods. They possessed full confidence that God could save them. But if not, they had complete faith in his plan. Similarly, Elder David A. Bednar once asked a young man who had requested a priesthood blessing, If it is the will of our Heavenly Father that you are transferred by death in your youth to the spirit world to continue your ministry, do you have the faith to submit to his will and not be healed? Do we have the faith not to be healed from our earthly afflictions so that we might be healed eternally? A critical question to ponder is, where do we place our faith? Is our faith focused on simply wanting to be relieved of pain and suffering, or is it firmly centered on God the Father and His holy plan, and in Jesus Christ and His atonement?
Faith in the Father and the Son allows us to understand and accept their will as we prepare for eternity. Today, I testify of miracles. Being a child of God is a miracle. Receiving a body in His image and likeness is a miracle. The gift of a Savior is a miracle. The Atonement of Jesus Christ is a miracle. The potential for eternal life is a miracle. While it is good to pray for and work for physical protection and healing during our mortal existence, our supreme focus should be on the spiritual miracles that are available to all of God's children. No matter our ethnicity, no matter our nationality, no matter what we have done if we repent, no matter what may have been done to us, all of us have equal access to these miracles. We are living a miracle, and further miracles lie ahead. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen.
One of the great challenges each of us faces every day is to not allow the concerns of this world to so dominate our time and energy that we neglect the eternal things that matter most. We can be too easily diverted from remembering and focusing upon essential spiritual priorities because of our many responsibilities and busy schedules. Sometimes, brothers and sisters, we try to run so fast that we may forget where we are going and why we are running. The Apostle Peter reminds us that for disciples of Jesus Christ, His divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. My message emphasizes the importance of the exceeding great and precious promises described by Peter as true reminders of where we are going in our mortal journey and why. I also will discuss the respective roles of the Sabbath day, the Holy Temple, and our homes in helping us to remember these important spiritual promises. I earnestly pray that the Holy Ghost will instruct each of us as we consider together these important truths. Our Heavenly Father's great plan of happiness includes the doctrine, the ordinances, the covenants, and the exceeding great and precious promises whereby we can become partakers of the divine nature. His plan defines our eternal identity and the pathway we must follow to learn, change, grow, and ultimately dwell with Him forever. As explained in The Family, a proclamation to the world, quote, All human beings, male and female, are created in the image of God. Each is a beloved spirit son or daughter of heavenly parents, and as such, each has a divine nature and destiny. In the pre-mortal realm, spirit sons and daughters knew and worshipped God as their eternal Father and accepted His plan by which His children could obtain a physical body and gain earthly experience to progress toward perfection and ultimately realize their divine destiny as heirs of eternal life. Close quote. God promises His children that if they follow the precepts of His plan and the example of His beloved Son, keep the commandments and endure in faith to the end, then by virtue of the Savior's redemption they shall have eternal life, which gift is the greatest of all the gifts of God. Eternal life is the ultimate, exceeding great and precious promise. We comprehend more fully the exceeding great and precious promises and begin to partake of the divine nature by responding affirmatively to the call from the Lord to glory and virtue. As described by Peter, this call is fulfilled by striving to escape the corruption that is in the world. As we press forward submissively with faith in the Savior, then because of His Atonement and by the power of the Holy Ghost, 
a mighty change takes place in us or in our hearts that we have no more disposition to do evil but to do good continually. We are born again, yea, born of God, changed from our carnal and fallen state to a state of righteousness, being redeemed of God. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Such a comprehensive change in our nature typically does not occur quickly or all at once. Like the Savior, we also receive not of the fullness at the first, but receive grace for grace. For behold, thus saith the Lord God, I will give unto the children of men line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little and there a little. And blessed are those who hearken unto my precepts and lend an ear unto my counsel, for they shall learn wisdom." Priesthood ordinances and sacred covenants are essential in this ongoing process of spiritual rebirth. They also are the means God has appointed whereby we receive His exceeding great and precious promises. Ordinances that are received worthily and remembered continually open the heavenly channels through which the power of godliness can flow into our lives. Covenants that are honored steadfastly and remembered always provide purpose and the assurance of blessings in both mortality and for eternity. For example, God promises us, according to our faithfulness, the constant companionship of the third member of the Godhead, even the Holy Ghost, that through the Atonement of Jesus Christ we can receive and always retain a remission of our sins that we can receive peace in this world, that the Savior has broken the bands of death and was victorious over the grave, and that families can be together for all eternity. Understandably, all of the exceeding great and precious promises Heavenly Father offers to His children cannot be counted or described comprehensively. However, even the partial list of promised blessings I just presented should cause each of us to stand all amazed and fall down and worship the Father in the name of Jesus Christ. President Lorenzo Snow warned, We are too apt to forget the great object of life, the motive of our Heavenly Father in sending us here to put on mortality, as well as the holy calling with which we have been called And hence, instead of rising above the little transitory things, we too often allow ourselves to come down to the level of the world without availing ourselves of the divine help which God has instituted, which alone can help us to overcome those transitory things. The Sabbath day and the Holy Temple are two specific sources of divine help instituted by God to assist us in rising above the level and corruption of the world. We may initially think that the overarching purposes of keeping the Sabbath day holy and attending the temple are related but distinctive. I believe, however, that those two purposes are precisely the same.
and they work together to strengthen us spiritually as individuals and in our homes. After God created all things, He rested on the seventh day and commanded that one day each week be a time of rest to help people remember Him. The Sabbath is God's time, a sacred time specifically set apart for worshiping Him and for receiving and remembering His great and precious promises. The Lord has directed in this dispensation that thou mayest more fully keep thyself unspotted from the world. Thou shalt go to the house of prayer and offer up thy sacraments upon my holy day. For verily this is a day appointed unto you to rest from your labors and to pay thy devotions unto the Most High. Thus, on the Sabbath, we worship the Father in the name of the Son by participating in ordinances and learning about, receiving, remembering, and renewing covenants. On His holy day, our thoughts, actions, and demeanor are signs we give to God and an indicator of our love for Him. An additional purpose of the Sabbath is to elevate our vision from the things of the world to the blessings of eternity. Removed during this sacred time from many of the regular routines of our busy lives, we can look to God and live by receiving and remembering the great and precious promises whereby we become partakers of the divine nature. The Lord always has commanded His people to build temples holy places in which worthy saints perform sacred gospel ceremonies and ordinances for themselves and for the dead. Temples are the most holy of all places of worship. A temple literally is the house of the Lord, a sacred space specifically set apart for worshiping God and for receiving and remembering His great and precious promises. The Lord has directed in this dispensation, Organize yourselves, prepare every needful thing, and establish a house, even a house of prayer, a house of fasting, a house of faith, a house of learning, a house of glory, a house of order, a house of God. The principal focus of temple worship is participating in ordinances and learning about receiving and remembering covenants. We think, act, and dress differently in the temple than in other spaces that we may frequent. A principal purpose of the temple is to elevate our vision from the things of the world to the blessings of eternity. Removed for a short time from the worldly settings with which we are familiar, we can look to God and live by receiving and remembering the great and precious promises whereby we become partakers of the divine nature. Brothers and sisters, please note that the Sabbath day and the temple, respectively, are a sacred time and a sacred space specifically set apart for worshiping God and for receiving and remembering His exceeding great and precious promises to His children. As instituted by God, 
the principal purposes of these two divine sources of help are exactly the same—to powerfully and repeatedly focus our attention upon our Heavenly Father, His only begotten Son, the Holy Ghost, and the promises associated with the ordinances and covenants of the Savior's restored gospel. Now, importantly, a home should be the ultimate combination of time and space wherein individuals and families remember most effectively God's great and precious promises. Leaving our homes to spend time in Sunday meetings and to enter the sacred space of a temple is vital but insufficient. Only as we bring the spirit and strength derived from these holy activities back with us into our homes can we sustain our focus upon the great purposes of mortal life and overcome the corruption that is in the world. Our Sabbath and temple experiences should be spiritual catalysts that imbue individuals and families and our homes with continual reminders of important lessons learned with the presence and power of the Holy Ghost, with ongoing and deepening conversion to the Lord Jesus Christ, and with a perfect brightness of hope in God's eternal promises. The Sabbath and the temple can help us to establish in our homes a more excellent way. As we gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in Him. What we do in our homes with His sacred time and with what we learn in His sacred space is pivotal to becoming partakers of the divine nature. We easily can be overcome by the routine and mundane matters of mortality—sleeping, eating, dressing, working, playing, exercising, and many other customary activities are necessary and important. But ultimately, what we become is the result of our knowledge of and willingness to learn from the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. It is not merely the sum total of our daily pursuits over the course of a lifetime. The gospel is so much more than a routine checklist of discrete tasks to be performed. Rather, it is a magnificent tapestry of truth, fitly framed and woven together, designed to help us become like our Heavenly Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, even partakers of the divine nature. Truly, we are blinded by looking beyond the mark when this overarching spiritual reality is overshadowed by the cares, concerns, and casualness of the world. As we are wise and invite the Holy Spirit to be our guide, I promise He will teach us what is true. He will testify of Christ and light our minds with heaven's view as we strive to fulfill our eternal destiny and become partakers of the divine nature. I bear my witness that the exceeding great and precious promises associated with our ordinances and covenants are sure 
The Lord has so declared. He said, I give unto you directions how you may act before me, that it may turn to you for your salvation. I, the Lord, am bound when ye do what I say, but when ye do not what I say, ye have no promise. I witness that our Heavenly Father lives and is the author of the plan of salvation. Jesus Christ is His only begotten Son, our Savior and Redeemer. He lives. And I testify that the Father's plan and promises, the Savior's atonement, and the companionship of the Holy Ghost make possible peace in this world and eternal life in the world to come. Of these things I testify in the sacred name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Brothers and sisters, we will now join the choir in singing Glory to God on High. After the singing, we will hear from Bishop W. Christopher Waddell of the presiding bishopric. He will be followed by Elder W. Craig Swick, who was released from serving as a General Authority 70 yesterday afternoon. Following Elder Swick's remarks, the choir will sing Dear to the Heart of the Shepherd. This is the 187th semi-annual General Conference of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. You're listening to the 187th semi-annual General Conference of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints on KSL-FM Midvale, KSL Salt Lake City.
In the spring of 1998, Carol and I were able to combine a business trip with a family vacation and bring our four children, along with my recently widowed mother-in-law, to Hawaii for a few days. The night before our flight to Hawaii, our four-month-old son Jonathan was diagnosed with a double ear infection, and we were told that he could not travel for at least three to four days. The decision was made for Carol to stay home with Jonathan while I would make the trip with the rest of the family. My first indication that this was not the trip I had envisioned occurred soon after our arrival. Walking down a moonlit, palm-lined path with a view of the ocean in front of us, I turned to comment on the beauty of the island, and in that romantic moment, rather than seeing Carol, I found myself looking into the eyes of my mother-in-law, <laughs> who, I may add, I love dearly. It just wasn't what I had anticipated. Nor had Carol expected to spend her vacation at home alone with our sick infant son. There will be times in our lives when we find ourselves on an unexpected path, facing circumstances much more severe than a disrupted vacation. How do we respond when events, oftentimes out of our control, alter the life we had planned or hoped for? On June 6, 1944, Hiram Shumway, a young second lieutenant in the United States Army, went ashore at Omaha Beach as part of the D-Day invasion. He made it safely through the landing, but on July 27, as part of the Allied advance, he was severely injured by an exploding anti-tank mine. In an instant, his life and future medical career had been dramatically impacted. Following multiple surgeries, which helped him recover from most of his serious injuries, Brother Shumway never did regain his sight. How would he respond? Following three years in rehabilitation hospital, he returned home to Lovell, Wyoming. He knew that his dream of becoming a medical doctor was no longer possible, but he was determined to get ahead, to move ahead, get married, and support a family. He eventually found work in Baltimore, Maryland, as a rehab counselor and employment specialist for the blind. In his own rehabilitation process, he had learned that the blind are capable of much more than he had realized. And during his eight years in this position, he placed more blind people into employment than any other counselor in the nation. Now confident in his ability to provide for a family, Hiram proposed to his sweetheart by telling her, If you will read the mail, sort the socks, and drive the car, I can do the rest. They were soon sealed in the Salt Lake Temple and ultimately blessed with eight children. In 1954, the Shumways returned to Wyoming, where Brother Shumway worked for 32 years as the State Director of Education for the Deaf and Blind. During that time, he served for seven years as Bishop of the Cheyenne First Ward and later 17 years as State Patriarch. Following his retirement, Brother and Sister Shumway also served as a senior couple in the London South Mission. Hiram Shumway passed away in March of 2011, leaving behind a legacy of faith and trust in the Lord, even under trying conditions, to his large posterity of children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren. Hiram Shumway's life may have been changed by war, but he never doubted his divine nature and eternal potential. Like him, we are spirit sons and daughters of God, 
and we accepted His plan by which we could obtain a physical body and gain earthly experience to progress towards perfection and ultimately realize our divine destiny as heirs of eternal life. No amount of change, no amount of trial or opposition can alter that eternal course, only our choices as we exercise our agency. The changes and resulting challenges that we encounter in mortality come in many packages and variety of shapes and sizes and impact each of us in unique ways. Like you, I have witnessed friends and family face challenges caused by the death of a loved one, a bitter divorce, perhaps never having the opportunity to marry, a serious illness or injury, and even natural disasters as we have recently witnessed around the world. And the list goes on. Although each change may be unique to our individual circumstances, there is a common element in the resulting trial or challenge. Hope and peace are always available through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The Atonement of Jesus Christ provides the ultimate corrective and healing measures to every wounded body, damaged spirit, and broken heart. He knows in a way that no one else can understand what it is that we need individually in order to move forward in the midst of change. Unlike friends and loved ones, the Savior not only sympathizes with us, but He can empathize perfectly because He has been where we are. In addition to paying the price and suffering for our sins, Jesus Christ also walked every path, dealt with every challenge, faced every hurt, physical, emotional, or spiritual, that we will ever encounter in mortality. President Boyd K. Packer taught, quote, The mercy and grace of Jesus Christ are not limited to those who commit sins, but they encompass the promise of everlasting peace to all who will accept and follow Him. His mercy is the mighty healer, even to the wounded innocent. Close quote. In this mortal experience, we cannot control all that happens to us but we have absolute control over how we respond to the changes in our lives. Now, this does not imply that the challenges and trials we face are of no consequence and easily handled or dealt with. It does not imply that we will be free from pain or heartache. But it does mean that there is cause for hope and that due to the Atonement of Jesus Christ, we can move forward and find better days, even days full of joy, light, and happiness. In Mosiah, we read the account of Alma, the ex-priest of King Noah and his people, who, having been warned of the Lord, departed into the wilderness before the armies of King Noah. After eight days, they came to a very beautiful and pleasant land where they pitched their tents and began to till the ground and began to build buildings. Their situation looked promising. They had accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ. They had been baptized as a covenant that they would serve the Lord and keep His commandments, and they did multiply and prosper exceedingly in the land. However, their circumstances would soon change. An army of the Lamanites was in the borders of the land. Alma and his people were soon placed in bondage, and so great were their afflictions that they began to cry mightily to God. In addition, they were even commanded by their captors to stop praying. Otherwise, whosoever should be found calling upon God should be put to death. Alma and his people had done nothing to deserve their new condition. How would they respond? Rather than blame God, they turned to Him and did pour out their hearts to Him. 
In response to their faith and silent prayers, the Lord responded, Be of good comfort. I will ease the burdens which are put upon your shoulders, that even you cannot feel them upon your backs. Soon after, the Lord did strengthen them, that they could bear up their burdens with ease, and they did submit cheerfully and with patience to all the will of the Lord. Now, Although not yet delivered from bondage, by turning to the Lord and not from the Lord, they were blessed according to their needs and according to the Lord's wisdom. Elder Dallin H. Oaks has taught, quote, that healing blessings come in, come in many ways, each suited to our individual needs as known to him who loves us best. Sometimes a healing cures our illness or lifts our burden, but sometimes we are healed by being given strength or understanding or patience to bear the burdens placed upon us." End quote. Ultimately, so great was their faith and their patience that Alma and his people were delivered by the Lord, as will we. And they gave thanks, for they were in bondage, and none could deliver them except it were the Lord their God. The sad irony is that too often those most in need turn away from their one perfect source of help, our Savior Jesus Christ. A familiar scriptural account of the brazen serpent teaches us that we have a choice when faced with challenges. After many of the children of Israel were bitten by fiery flying serpents, a type was raised up that whosoever would look might live, but it was a choice. And many did look and live, but there were many who were so hardened that they would not look, therefore they perished. Like the ancient Israelites, we are also invited and encouraged to look to the Savior and live, for His yoke is easy. And his burden is light, even when ours may be heavy. Alma the Younger taught this sacred truth when he said, I do know that whosoever shall put their trust in God shall be supported in their trials and their troubles and their afflictions and shall be lifted up at the last day. In these latter days, the Lord has provided us with numerous resources, our brazen serpents, all of which are designed to help us look to Christ and place our trust in Him. Dealing with the challenges of life is not about ignoring reality, but rather where we choose to focus and the foundation upon which we choose to build. These resources include, but are not limited to, regular study of the scriptures and the teachings of living prophets, frequent, sincere prayer and fasting, worthily partaking of the sacrament, regular temple attendance, priesthood blessings, wise counseling through trained professionals, and even medication when properly prescribed and used as authorized. Whatever change in life circumstances may come our way and whatever unexpected path we may have to travel, how we respond is a choice. Turning to the Savior and grasping His outstretched arm is always our best option. Elder Richard G. Scott taught this eternal truth. True, enduring happiness, with the accompanying strength, courage, and capacity to overcome the most challenging difficulties, comes from a life centered in Jesus Christ. There is no guarantee of overnight results, but there is absolute assurance that in the Lord's time solutions will come, peace will prevail, and emptiness will be filled. 
To these truths I share my witness. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. The Lion King is a classic animated film about the African savanna. When the Lion King dies while saving his son, the young Lion Prince is forced into exile while a despot ruler destroys the balance of the savanna. The Lion Prince reclaims the kingdom through the help of a mentor. His eyes are open to the necessity of balance in the great circle of life on the savanna. Claiming his rightful place as king, the young lion was counseled to look beyond what you see. Learning to become inheritors of all our Father has, the gospel mentors us to look beyond what we see. To look beyond what we see, we must look at others through the eyes of our Savior. The gospel net is filled with people in all their variety. We can't fully understand the choices and psychological backgrounds of people in our world, church congregations, and even in our families because we rarely have the whole picture of who they are. We must look past the easy assumptions and stereotypes and widen the tiny lens of our own experience. I had my eyes opened to looking beyond what I could see while serving as a mission president. A young elder arrived with apprehension in his eyes. As we met in an interview, he said dejectedly, I want to go home. I thought to myself, we can fix this. I counseled him to work hard and to pray about it for a week and then call me. A week later, almost to the minute, he called. He still wanted to go home. I again counseled him to pray, to work hard, and to call me in a week. In our next interview, things had not changed. He insisted on going home. I just wasn't going to let that happen. I began teaching him about the sacred nature of his call. I encouraged him to forget himself and go to work. But no matter what formula I offered, his mind did not change. It finally occurred to me that I might not have the whole picture. It was then that I felt a prompting to ask him the question, Elder, what is hard for you? What he said pierced my heart. President, I can't read. The wise counsel, which I thought was so important for him to hear, was not at all relevant for him to his needs. What he needed most was for me to look beyond my hasty assessment and allow the Spirit to help me understand what was really on this elder's mind. He needed me to see him correctly and offer a reason to hope. Instead, I acted like a giant demolition wrecking ball. This valiant elder did learn to read and became a very pure disciple of Jesus Christ. He opened my eyes to the Lord's words. 
For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. What a blessing it is when the Spirit of the Lord widens our view. Remember the prophet Elisha who woke up to find the Syrian army surrounding his city with their horses and chariots? His manservant was frightened and asked Elisha what they were going to do against such odds. Elisha told him not to worry with the memorable words, Fear not, for they that be with us are more than they that be with them. The manservant had no idea what the prophet was talking about. He could not look beyond what he could see. However, Elisha saw battalions of angels prepared to do battle for the prophet's people. So Elisha prayed to the Lord to open the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. We often separate ourselves from others by the differences in what we see. We feel comfortable around those who think, talk, dress, and even act like we do, and uncomfortable with those who come from different circumstances or backgrounds. In reality, don't we all come from different countries and all speak different languages? Don't we all see the world through the enormous limitations of our own life experience? For some see and speak with spiritual eyes, as the prophet Elisha, and some see and communicate with literal sight, as I experienced with my illiterate missionary. We live in a world that feeds on comparisons, labeling, and criticism. Instead of seeing through the lens of social media, we need to look inward for the godly attributes to which we each lay claim. These godly qualities and longings cannot be posted on Pinterest or Instagram. To accept, the love other, accept and love others does not mean we must embrace their ideas. Obviously, truth mandates our highest allegiance, though it should never be a barrier to kindness. Truly loving others requires the ongoing practice of accepting the best efforts of people whose life experiences and limitations we may never fully know. Looking beyond what we can see requires conscious focus on the Savior. On May 28, 2016, 16-year-old Bo Ritchie and his friend Austin were at a family ranch in Colorado. Bo and Austin climbed into their all-terrain vehicle with great anticipation for a day of adventure. They had not gone far when they encountered precarious conditions, at which point tragedy struck. The vehicle Bo was driving flipped over suddenly, pinning Bo under 400 pounds of steel. When Bo's friend Austin got to him, he saw Bo struggling for his life with every bit of his strength. He tried to pull the vehicle off his best friend. It wouldn't budge. He prayed for Bo and then frantically went for help. Emergency personnel finally arrived, but a few hours later, Bo died. He was released from this mortal life. His heartbroken parents arrived as they stood in the small hospital 
with Bo's dearest friend and family members. A police officer entered the room and handed Bo's cell phone to his mother. As she took the phone, an audible alarm sounded. She opened the phone and saw Bo's daily alarm. She read aloud the message her fun-loving, highly adventurous teenage son had set to read every day. It said, Remember to put Jesus Christ at the center of your life today. Bo's focus on his Redeemer does not lessen his loved one's sorrow in his absence. However, it gives great hope and meaning to Bo's life and life choices. It allows his family and friends to look beyond only the grief of his early death to the joyful realities of the next life. What a tender mercy for Bo's parents to see through their son's eyes the thing he most prized. As members of the Church, we have been gifted personal spiritual alarms that warn us when we are looking with only mortal eyes away from salvation. The sacrament is our weekly reminder to continually focus on Jesus Christ, that we might always remember Him and that we might always have His Spirit to be with us. Yet, we sometimes ignore these feelings of reminder and alarm. When we have Jesus Christ at the center of our lives, He will cause that our eyes may be opened to larger possibilities than we alone can comprehend. I received this very interesting letter about a protective alarm experienced by a faithful sister. She told me that in an effort to help her husband understand how she felt, she began to keep an electronic list on her phone of things he did or said that irritated her. She reasoned that when the time was right, she would have a compiled written proof to share with him that would make him want to change his ways. However, one Sunday, while partaking of the sacrament and focusing on the Atonement of the Savior, she realized that documenting her negative feeling about her husband was truly driving the Spirit from her and was never going to change him. A spiritual alarm went off in her heart that said, Let it go. Let it all go. Delete those notes. They are not helpful. Then she wrote, and I quote, It took me a while to hit select all and even longer to hit delete. (laughs) But as I did, all of those negative feelings were lost in space. My heart filled with love, love for my husband and love for the Lord. Like Saul on the road to Damascus, her vision changed. The scales of distortion fell from her eyes. Our Savior frequently opened eyes of the physically and spiritually blind. Opening our eyes to divine truth, literally and figuratively, prepares us to be healed of mortal short-sightedness. When we pay attention to spiritual alarms that signal a need for course correction or larger eternal perspective, we are receiving the sacramental promise to have His Spirit to be with us.
This happened to Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery in the Kirtland Temple when compelling truths were taught by Jesus Christ, who promised that the veil of mortal limitations would be taken from their minds and the eyes of their understanding would be open. I testify and witness that through the power of Jesus Christ we become able to look spiritually beyond what we see literally as we remember Him and have His Spirit with us our eyes of understanding will be opened. Then the great reality of the divinity within every one of us will be more powerfully impressed upon our hearts. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen.
We are indeed grateful for, to the Mormon Tabernacle Choir for the beautiful music they have provided this morning and as they always do. Our concluding speaker for this session will be President Henry B. Eyring, First Counselor in the First Presidency. Following President Eyring's remarks, the choir will close the meeting by singing, I Believe in Christ. The benediction will then be offered Elder Jose Teixeira of the Seventy. My dear brothers and sisters, I pray humbly that the Spirit of the Lord will be with us as I speak today. My heart is full of gratitude to the Lord, whose Church this is for the inspiration we have felt in fervent prayers, inspired sermons, and angelic singing in this conference. Last April, President Thomas S. Monson gave a message that stirred hearts across the world, including mine. He spoke of the power of the Book of Mormon, here just to study, ponder, and apply its teachings. He promised that if we dedicated time each day to studying and pondering and kept the commandments of the Book of Mormon that it contains, we would have a vital testimony of its truth, and the resultant testimony of the living Christ would see us through to safety in times of trouble. Like many of you, 
I heard the prophet's words as the voice of the Lord to me. And also, like many of you, I decided to obey those words. Now, since I was a young boy, I have felt the witness that the Book of Mormon is the Word of God, that the Father and the Son appeared and spoke with Joseph Smith, and that ancient, ancient apostles came to the Prophet Joseph to restore priesthood keys to the Lord's Church. With that testimony, I have read the Book of Mormon every day for more than 50 years. So perhaps I could have reasonably thought that President Monson's words were for someone else. Yet, like many of you, I felt the Prophet's encouragement and his promise invite me to make a greater effort. Many of you have done what I did, prayed with increased intent, pondered scripture more intently, and tried harder to serve the Lord and others for Him. The happy result for me and for many of you has been what the Prophet promised. Those of us who took his inspired counsel to heart have heard the Spirit more distinctly. We have found a greater power to resist temptation and have felt greater faith in a, res a resurrected Jesus Christ, in His gospel, and in His living Church. In a season of increasing tumult in the world, those increases in testimony have driven out doubt and fear and have brought us feelings of peace. Heeding President Monson's counsel has had two other wonderful effects on me. First, the spirit he promised has produced a sense of optimism about what lies ahead, even as the commotion in the world seems to increase. And second, the Lord has given me and you an even greater feeling of His love for those in distress. We have felt an increase in the desire to go to the rescue of others. That desire has been at the heart of President Monson's ministry and teaching. The Lord promised love for others and courage to the Prophet Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery when the tasks ahead of them could have seemed overwhelming. The Lord said that needed courage would come from their faith in Him as their rock. Quote, Fear not to do good, my sons, for whatsoever ye sow, that shall ye also reap. Therefore, if ye sow good, ye shall also reap good for your reward. Therefore, fear not, little flock, do good. Let earth and hell combine against you, for if you are built upon my rock, they cannot prevail. Behold, I do not condemn you. Go your ways and sin no more. Perform with soberness the work which I have commanded you. Look unto me in every thought. Doubt not, fear not. Behold the wounds which pierced my side, and also the prints of the nails in my hands and feet. Be faithful. Keep my commandments, and ye shall inherit the kingdom of heaven." Close quote. The Lord told His leaders of the Restoration, and He tells us that when we stand with faith upon His rock, doubt and fear are diminished. The desire to do good increases. 
as we accept President Monson's invitation to plant in our hearts a testimony of Jesus Christ, we gain the power, the desire, and the courage to go to the rescue of others without concern for our own needs. I have seen that faith and courage many times when believing Latter-day Saints have faced fearsome trials. For one example, I was in Idaho when the Teton Dam broke on June 5, 1976. A wall of water came down. Thousands fled from their homes. Thousands of homes and businesses were destroyed. Miraculously, fewer than 15 people were killed. What I saw there I have seen whenever Latter-day Saints stand firmly on the rock of a testimony of Jesus Christ. Because they have no doubt He watches over them, they become fearless. They ignore their own trials to go to the relief of others, and they do so out of love for the Lord, asking no recompense. For example, when the Teton Dam broke, a Latter-day Saint family couple was traveling miles away from their home. As soon as they heard the news on the radio, they hurried back to Rexburg. Rather than going to their own home to see if it was destroyed, they went looking for their bishop. He was in a building that was being used as the recovery center. He was helping to direct the thousands of volunteers who were arriving in yellow school buses. The couple walked up to the bishop and said, We just got back, bishop. Where can we go to help? He gave them the names of the family. That couple stayed mucking out mud and water in one home after another. They worked from dawn to dark for days. They finally took a break to go see about their own home. It was gone in the flood, leaving nothing to clean up. So they turned around quickly to go back to their bishop. They asked the bishop, do you have someone for us to help? That miracle of quiet courage and charity, the pure love of Christ, has been repeated over the years and across the world. It happened in the terrible days of the persecutions and trials at the time of the Prophet Joseph Smith in Missouri. It happened as Brigham Young led the exodus from Nauvoo and then called saints to desert places all over the western United States to help each other create Zion for the Lord. If you read the journal entries of those pioneers, you see the miracle of faith driving out doubt and fear. And you read of saints leaving their own interests to help someone else for the Lord before getting back to their own sheep or to their own unplowed fields. I saw that same miracle a few short days ago in the aftermath of Hurricane Irma in Puerto Rico, St. Thomas, and Florida, where Latter-day Saints partnered with other churches, led local community groups and national organizations to begin cleanup efforts, like my friends in Rexburg, one non-member couple in Florida, focused on helping the community rather than laboring on their own property. When some Latter-day Saint neighbors offered help with the two large trees blocking their driveway, the couple explained that they had been overwhelmed and so had turned to helping others. 
having faith the Lord would provide the aid they needed at their own home. The husband then shared that before our church members arrived with offers of assistance, the couple had been praying. They had received an answer that help would come. It came within hours of that assurance. I have heard a report that some have started calling the Latter-day Saints who are wearing yellow helping hand t-shirts, hands t-shirts, the yellow angels. One Latter-day Saint took her car in for service, and the man helping her described the spiritual experience he had when people in yellow shirts removed trees from his yard. And then he said, they sang some song to me about being a child of God. (laughs) Another Florida resident, also not of our faith, related to me that the Latter Saints came to her home when she was working in her devastated yard and feeling overwhelmed, overheated, and close to tears. The volunteers created, in her words, a pure miracle. They served not only with diligence but with laughter and smiles, accepting nothing in return. I saw that diligence and heard that laughter when late on a Saturday I visited with a group of Latter-day Saints in Florida. The volunteers stopped their cleanup labor long enough to let me shake some hands. They said that 90 members of their stake in Georgia had created a plan to join in the rescue in Florida just the night before. They left Georgia at 4 in the morning, drove for hours, worked through the day and into the night, and planned to labor again the next day. They described it to me all with smiles and good humor. The only stress I sensed was that they wanted to stop being thanked so that they could get back to work. (laughs) The stake president had restarted his chainsaw and was working on a town tree, and a bishop was moving tree limbs as we got into our vehicle to go to the next rescue team. I don't think they even waved back to us. They were so busy. Earlier that day, as we pulled away from another side, a man had walked up to the car, took off his hat, and thanked us for the volunteers. He said, I'm not a member of your church. I can't believe what you've done for us. God bless you. The LDS volunteer standing next to him in his yellow shirt smiled and shrugged his shoulders as if he deserved no praise. While the volunteers from Georgia had come to help this man in, in, in that part of Florida, who couldn't believe it. Hundreds of Latter-day Saints from that very devastated part of Florida had gone hundreds of miles south to another place in Florida where they had heard the people were harder hit. That day I remembered and understood better the prophetic words, which I've never quite understood before, of the prophet Joseph Smith. Quote, A man filled with the love of God is not content with blessing his family alone, but ranges through the whole world, in this case all of Florida, anxious to bless the whole human race. We see such love in the lives of Latter-day Saints everywhere. Each time there is a tragic event anywhere in the world, Latter-day Saints donate and volunteer to the Church's humanitarian efforts. An appeal is seldom needed. In fact, on some occasions recently, we have had to ask would-be volunteers to wait to travel to the recovery site until those directing the work are prepared to receive them. That desire to bless is the fruit of people gaining a testimony of Jesus Christ. His gospel, 
His restored Church, and His prophet. That is why the Lord's people doubt not and fear not. That is why missionaries volunteer for service in every corner of the world. That is why parents pray with their children for others. That is why leaders challenge their youth to take President Monson's request to immerse themselves in the Book of Mormon to heart. The fruit comes not by being urged by leaders, but by the youth and members acting on faith. That faith put into action, which requires selfless sacrifice, brings the change of heart that allows them to feel the love of God. Our hearts, however, remain changed only as long as we continue to follow the prophet's counsel. If we stop trying, after one burst of effort, the change will fade. Faithful Latter-day Saints have increased their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, in the Book of Mormon, as the Word of God, and in the restoration of priesthood keys in His true Church. That increased testimony has given us greater courage and concern for others of God's children. But the challenges and the opportunities ahead will require even more. We cannot foresee the details, but we know the larger picture. We know that in the last days the world will be in commotion. We know that in the midst of whatever trouble comes, the Lord will lead faithful Latter-day Saints to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. And we know that the Lord's true disciples will be worthy and prepared to receive Him when He comes again. We need not fear. So, as much as we have already built faith and courage in our hearts, the Lord expects more from us and from the generations after us. They will need to be stronger and braver because they will do even greater, greater and harder things than we have done. And they will face increasing opposition from the enemy of our souls. The way to optimism as we go forward was given by the Lord. Look unto me in every thought. Doubt not, fear not. President Monson told us how to do that. We are to ponder and apply the Book of Mormon and the words of prophets. Pray always. Be believing. Serve the Lord with all our heart, might, mind, and strength. We are to pray with all the energy of our hearts for the gift of charity, the pure love of Christ. And above all, we are to be consistent and persistent in following prophetic counsel. When the way is difficult, we can rely on the Lord's promise. The promise President Monson has reminded us when he has often quoted these words of the Savior, Whoso receiveth you, there I will be also. I will go before your face. I will be on your right hand and on your left, and my spirit shall be in your hearts, and mine angels round about you to bear you up. I testify that the Lord goes before your face whenever you are on His errand. Sometimes you will be the angel the Lord sends to bear others up.
Sometimes you'll be the one surrounded by angels who bear you up. But always you will have His Spirit to be in your heart, as you have been promised in every sacrament service. You have only to keep His commandments. The best days are ahead for the kingdom of God on the earth. Opposition will strengthen our faith in Jesus Christ, as it has since the days of the Prophet Joseph Smith. Faith always defeats fear. Standing together produces unity. And your prayers for those in need are heard and answered by a loving God. He neither slumbers nor does he sleep. I bear my witness that God the Father lives and wants you to come home to Him. This is the true Church of the Lord Jesus Christ. He knows you. He loves you. He watches over you. He atoned for your sins and mine and the sins of all of Heavenly Father's children. Following Him in your life and your service to others is the only way to eternal life. I so testify and leave you my blessing and my love in the sacred name of Jesus Christ. Amen.
Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank Thee, Father, for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank Thee, Father, for temples in the world. We thank Thee for the Sabbath day. And we thank Thee for the goodness of the members of the Church. We pray, Father, that we might be blessed with an increase of compassion for our fellow men, that we might have an increased desire to look for our ancestors and take their names to the temple, that we might have an increased desire to live and share the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that we might rejoice and find delight in the observance of the Sabbath day, both at church and at home. We are grateful for our prophet and ask thy blessing to be upon him. And we pray for these things, Father, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. This has been a broadcast of the 187th Semi-Annual General Conference of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Speakers were selected from the general authorities and general officers of the church. Music was provided by the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. This broadcast has been furnished as a public service by Bonneville Distribution. Any reproduction, recording, transcription, or other use of this program without written consent is prohibited.